Okay, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? God, we come before your holy word with great awe and reverence, knowing that you have spoken supernaturally into this world, that you have given us your very words, that we would see you, know you, and trust you. And God, especially as we approach this topic, I pray that you're speaking to us, that you're comforting us, God, where the road is a little bit hard this morning, that you would be there. God, where we need to step out in faith, that you, by the Holy Spirit, would guide our steps. But primarily, God, that you would set our sights on heaven, that we would be full of joy for the life that is to come. We ask this by the word, by the name of God our Father. Amen. So, uh, I don't know how old I was, probably 14, 13, something like that. My dad took my brother and I on a hike. It wasn't really a hike, though. It was more of a walk. But it was, it was a different kind of walk than we'd ever done because it was to this old abandoned train tunnel out in the middle of nowhere in Washington State. And he took us to the, the head, the opening of this train tunnel. And we looked down, and, and he had told us about it. He told us that it goes a half mile down. It doesn't, it's not used anymore. And you look, and you, and you stare into that darkness, that, that pitch black, and you try to see the end, and of course you can't. It's too far. There are too many bends in the road and the train tracks. And we looked down there, and he said, okay, we're going to go. We're going to walk down, and we're going to make it out. There will be a light at the end of the tunnel. A literal light at the end of the tunnel. There are no more trains on this track. It's okay. You will be safe. But my brother and I are standing on the edge, looking in, going, you are no way. There's no way we are going to do that. The thought of walking in the pitch black like that, not knowing what we encounter, not knowing if we would make it out absolutely terrified us. Death, in a sense, looms like that dark tunnel. But with death, we do not have the option to stand back and just consider it. We know it is coming, and so we ask on the fly, now, is it safe? Is there a light at the end? Is there good after? 
after. Woody Allen loves to talk and think about death for some reason. And he said this a couple decades ago. I always see death's head lurking. I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game and they're cheering and everything is thrilling and one of the players is doing something very beautiful. And my thought will be, he's only 28 years old and I only wish he could savor this moment in some way because, you know, this is as good as it's going to get for him. The fundamental thing he said behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and against death. That's kind of dark. But maybe that's you. Maybe you think a lot about what's coming. It looms large and dark and scary. You think about it all the time. What will happen to me? I would say that you need peace. Perhaps you don't think about it. You are on the opposite end of the spectrum. You're too busy to think about that. Too much going on. Death is way too far in the distance. And maybe maybe with this you think, and what is death anyway? Are are we really going to go on after this? Are we just going to, that's it, nothing. Once you're dead, you're dead. Or at the very least you think, I'm going to go where all the good people go. Maybe that's you. I would say you need to wake up or you're something else altogether. You know that it is in this darkness, even in the darkness of death, that you will find the light, but you need to hear it again. You need the truth. My brother and I eventually follow my dad into the tunnel and it was darker and scarier even than we thought. At one point, my dad thought he heard a train coming. He really did and he was high-stepping it out of there, but it didn't. We survived. There was a light at the end of the tunnel and it was more glorious than we could have believed. Can we say the same about our death? Can we approach our death in the same way that even knowing that it is dark, there will be light coming. There is good after. Our question this morning is, what happens when we die? Let's approach it with reverence this morning. And three points. We're going to be all over the map with the scriptures, but we do have three points to guide us. One, the problems of death. Two, the hope of death. And three, the impact of death. One, the problems of death. The problems of death. So we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. You can flip there if you want to, or I can just read it for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. This is Paul speaking to a church there. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Have you heard him say that before? What is he talking about? What's the context there? Well, if you think about it, it's actually very sad. It's, it's, uh, it was a time of mourning for the people there. He was, he was writing to people who were grieving, right? The people there had believed that Jesus was coming back. These were Christ followers. They believed that someday Jesus was going to come back, but that someday was really soon, like within their lifetimes, but especially before any of them died. They felt like they were guaranteed this. And then the first Christian dies. And it would have been utterly 
devastating. Yes, because it upended their view of when Christ was coming and how he was coming, but probably mostly because they were desperately sad. They had lost their brother, their friend in Christ. Christian communities back then were so much tighter knit than they are today. I lost my friend, my brother, my sister. We thought that Jesus conquered death. Paul is ministering in this verse to the grieving. In other words, for them, death was a problem. Death was a problem. I think you know that this has not changed. Death is problematic. It is problematic for everyone, no matter who you are. My favorite song from the the musical Hamilton, it's on Broadway right now. It's sung by uh, the, the historical figure Aaron Burr, infamous former vice president. And he sings a song called, Wait for It. And there's this beautiful line where he says, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. And we keep living anyway. Death does not discriminate. You could be a sinner, you could be a saint. Whoever you are, it is inevitable. And it is final. There is no coming back. Once you die in this earth, you pass on forever. That is a problem. There is something internally distressive about that. Something inside of us that says, no, no, I don't want that. Listen, animals don't want to die. They, they try to avoid death, that's true. Humans want to live forever. That is very distinct. Alan Lightman, he is a professor at, over at MIT. He has appointments in science and uh, the humanities, and he wrote this at one point in his life. To my mind, it is one of the most profound contradictions of human existence that we long for immortality. Indeed, fervently believe that something must be unchanging and permanent. When all of the evidence in nature argues against us, I certainly have such a longing. Either I am delusional or nature is incomplete. Either I am being emotional and vain in my wish for eternal life for myself and for my daughter. Or there is some realm of immortality that exists outside of nature. Death is inevitable. It's final. That is a problem. That's not the only problem with death. Death seems to undercut meaning itself. If death is really all that there is at the end of our lives, how can we live this life out meaningfully? If things are that just end after seven decades or less, how can we work? How can we create and love meaningfully? Listen again to Woody Allen. He says this very starkly. Death is absolutely stupefying in its terror and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. As Camus wrote, it's not only that he dies or that man dies, but that you struggle to do a work of art that will last and then realize that the universe itself is not going to exist after a period of time. And then he ends this way, those issues must be resolved within each person, religiously or psychologically or existentially. We are faced with death. It is inevitable. It is final. And we are considering our lives. How do we live now? Is there any meaning to what we do here today? That is a problem. 
inevitability, finality, meaning. They are problems. But if I were to ask any of you or anyone on the street, what's the problem with death? You would probably just say something like, it's terrible. It is terrible to die. It is terrible to lose a loved one. When C.S. Lewis's wife passed away, he described it as an amputation. An amputation. Nicholas Walter Storff, he's a philosopher at Yale, when his son tragically passed away, he wrote, It's the neverness, the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us. Never to sit with us at the table. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. Only our death can stop the pain of his death. What is he saying? What's the problem? Death is not right. It is so terrible that it seems unnatural. And Christianity comes in and it says... That's correct. Yes, you are right. Death is not right. Christianity teaches that the reason that death feels so unnatural is because it is. Here's the truth of the word, the baseline truth about death in the world. When God created the world, he did not create it with death. It was not in his plan. Everything was good, and that meant there was no death in it. Death was woven into the fabric of the universe when Adam and Eve sinned, when they believed the lie of Satan. And a lot went wrong at that point, but the glaring thing, the worst thing to come from the sin of man was death itself. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is the last thing that will be defeated because it is the greatest evil. And so I think that we can say very easily this morning that death is not just a problem, it is the problem. We long for something other than this. We long for more. More time to work and create and enjoy this world. More time with our children, our wives, our husbands, our friends, our siblings. Death is a problem for which we ache for a solution. But I would say that is a good thing. That is where we need to be. Maybe our question really isn't, what happens when you die? But why am I asking this question in the first place? Let's try to give the answer now in our second point to the hope of death. The hope of death, I mean that. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.13 again. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay, he's talking about them being asleep. Why did he do that? Why would he talk about believers who are dead being asleep? Did he not understand the, the, the science behind death? Well, he probably didn't, but he understood what dead meant. He got that. People knew when people died what, what was really going on. Heart stopped beating, lungs stopped breathing. So, Why in the world would he say that they're just asleep? It is because for Paul, death was not the end. One woman who was struggling with cancer in her last days, she wrote a blog, an entire blog that was called this. Death is not dying. Death is not dying. And that is because she knew the truth that there is an after death. 
a post-death, but that's actually not a good way to say it because when we die, there will be a reversal of death and it will begin instantly. When we finally slip off into our physical slumber, the Bible says that something astounding will happen. Death is not the end. Death is simply a door, an entrance into something better, better than anything we can imagine. Because when you die, you will meet him. I wish I could wait to say this at the end. Rhetorically, you know, I just want to hold off on this and tell you what it's like to be at the end. But I can't wait. You must know that when you die, if you are a believer in Christ, you will go to be with him in paradise. He's on the cross. Jesus is on the cross. And he's speaking to the two men on, the side, beside of him, on each side of him, both nailed to the cross. And he says to the one, Today, you will be with me in paradise. We have no idea what that man did. We have no idea the sins that he committed in his life, and yet Christ forgave him on the spot, and he promised him paradise. We must expect the same. No purgatory. No soul sleep. Your sins forgiven, your adoption secure. Jesus will not wait to take you home to be with him forever. And it will be goodness upon goodness. It will be delight upon delight. Psalm 1611, memorize this. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. No more guilt, no more fear, no more pain, no more mourning. What happens when you die? If you trust on Jesus, you will reign in joy. And we could end it right there, but it goes on. This is not the end state. This is a spiritual state. We believe that you go through that door. Once you die, you go through the door and you are rushed into eternity with Jesus and you are in paradise. But that is not the end. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that we must also, at the appointed time, receive new bodies, glorified bodies. When Jesus returns, we will become physical again. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. He's saying that death, that our body, when our bodies die, that's not the end. The bodies that we have now, this is not what we are going to end up with, but we will end up with bodies. I don't know of another religion that teaches that, that we will be both spirit and body in the afterlife. Our bodies now are too corrupted, too weak. But when Jesus comes, he will restore us, renew us, we will become perfect. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. The easiest way to say it is that we are going to become like Jesus. We will have bodies like the resurrected and glorified Christ. We will be perfected spirit and flesh. Now, I just, I just want to unpack this a little bit more because I think it's fun and I think it's helpful. First, our bodies will be imperishable. You've been hearing me say that. He says it more clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What does that mean? Our bodies will never break down. We will not get old or sick. We will not get cancer. We will not die. Johnny Erickson taught as a quadriplegic, has been since she was 18 years old. She longs for the day when she will receive her new body. Listen to her. I can still hardly believe it, she says. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone, some, someone who has a spinal cord injury like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Johnny went into a classroom one time and it was full of children who uh, were mentally handicapped in one way or the other. And she's talking to them about the new bodies that they're going to receive and they're listening uh, very intently. And she says, and you will receive new minds too. And the class erupted in laughter and clapping. We will be imperishable. Our bodies will be glorified. They will be glorified. Verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now we don't really know what this means. Wayne Grudem thinks that this means something like a physical beauty, but it's not like we understand it here. To be glorified is to have a radiance that I think comes from an an internal righteousness. It is a beauty that we do not really understand, cannot even really picture, though C.S. Lewis tried to do it. He tried to do it in his book, The Great Divorce, probably my favorite book of all time. He talks about a man who has come from hell to meet these heavenly beings. And the man at the end of the book sees a a figure in the distance coming in procession that he can barely describe. Listen to his description. I cannot now remember whether she was naked or clothed. If she were naked, then it must have been almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy, which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. If she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the clarity with which her inmost spirit shone through the clothes. 
for the clothes in that country or not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. A robe or a crown is there as much as one of wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I have forgotten, he says, and only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. We will be beautiful in ways we do not understand. We will have bodies of glory. Last, we will be powerful. Verse 43 again. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. We have no idea what this means, to be raised in power. But you can get some, of, some idea from it by contrasting it with weakness. We will not be weak. We will not be fragile. We will be strong, mighty, unbreakable. Remember this as you grow old, as our bodies wither and waste away, what we will be in the future. Is all that true? Is everything I just said about the afterlife, about what happens, this life to come, is that true? When we die, are, are we going to be raised to new life if we've trusted on Christ to be with him instantly in paradise? And then when he comes back with new glorified bodies, is that true? There are people who scoff at this idea, of course, of a glorious, eternal existence with God in heaven. But listen, this doubt has existed from the beginning. This is why chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians exists. Because men and women inside the church and outside of it doubted it. They doubted that you could be raised to new life. So Paul sets them straight. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And listen, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, we don't think that we can be raised from the dead. There's no way that people can, can, can rise up out of their graves like you're talking about. He says, if that's true, on the basis for your faith, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That cannot be true either. A blogger a few years back, he posted this question on his website. He said, if you had a time machine, awesome, you got a time machine, and you traveled back in history 2,000 years to about a year after Jesus' death and supposed resurrection, and you went to his tomb, And you opened it. And you found him there. Not resurrected. Still dead. How would that impact your faith? How would that impact what you believed? How you lived your life? Many answered the question by saying, well, I don't think it really matters. Jesus was really just an an idea. What matters is that he was resurrected spiritually. That his ideas and thoughts and philosophies go on. Faith, they said, is a good thing whether or not it is based on truth or not. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 15, 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have only hope in this life, We are of all people to be most 
pitied. That is an amazing thing. Your faith is worthless without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith is very different than other religions because it means that you trust something that is verifiable. Of all belief systems, Kathy Keller writes, Christianity is the only one that insists its truth must be founded on the historical existence of a person named Jesus. And that further, he historically said and did the things he claimed of him. You either believe that he lived and died and rose from the dead, or you don't. Paul says that if he did it, then you should just eat and drink and be merry. But if he did, then that changes everything. Everything, and especially your death. For if he rose, then so will you. And Paul says he did. He did. And he says it because everyone saw him. Everyone saw him go into that tomb, and then everyone saw him alive after. He was dead, dead as a doornail, and then they saw him walking around, teaching, talking, loving. Jesus rose from the grave, and it changed everything. I read this earlier, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have believed. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? You must. You must believe on Jesus and on him alone. You must belong to him. Paul opens 1 Corinthians 15 by saying that the gospel is this truth. The power of God unto our salvation is the resurrection of Jesus. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. We've talked a lot about the after death. What about the before? The hope for our future in this life is based entirely on the faith decision we make in this life. If we put our hope in him, if we confess our sins and cry out to him that only he can save, we will be rescued now and forever. If you fall into his mercy today, he will carry you to heaven. If you trust his mercy now, you will have the greatest hope imaginable. But here is where I must say the worst thing imaginable. If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus, the answer to the question, what happens when I die, will be much different for you. For the Bible says what Jesus says, is that hell awaits you. The place where your body and your spirit will go, the place where you will go, to be punished for eternity. If you have not trusted on Jesus, if you have not allowed the Lord to be Lord of your life, your death will be dying forever. And so I say, do not delay. Do not wait. Not stand outside that tunnel looking in, but trust him. Let me tell you, it does not take any work. It does not take any effort. All it takes is that you would believe and trust and rest. Now, this will seem like the hardest thing you ever do, but in the end, it will turn out to be the easiest. Heed the words of Gerhard Ford. 
to the age-old question, what shall I do to be saved? The confessional answer is shocking. Nothing. Just be still. Shut up and listen for once in your life to what God, the Almighty Creator and Redeemer, is saying in this world and to you in the death and resurrection of His Son. Listen and believe. There is hope even in death. The impact of death. Last point this morning. How do you live in light of all of this? How do you live in light of the coming darkness? The coming light? Because you must, right? You can't just set it out there and forget it. This thing must have an impact on what we do now. We must keep in mind the blissful or dreadful eternity as we lead our lives. We must let it affect us, wash over us. I'm just going to give you five things. One, be comforted. Be comforted. Death is hard. It is not right. When Stephen was martyred, he looked up to heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of his father. And they all know, his friends knew where he was going, but when he died, they wept for days. They mourned for days. Death is hard. That does not change in this life. And so you will mourn when death comes. You will mourn when your own death is approaching. And you must. And so be comforted by God, who did not spare his own son, who experienced the worst pain of death. He will hold you in your time. He will carry you. Two, be steadfast. Paul says this at the end of, his, of, of, the, at the end of chapter 15. It's glorious. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. In other words, do not fall away. Do not be deceived by sin. Paul says earlier in the chapter that we should wake up from our drunken stupor and stop sinning. We have this life and this life alone. We must endure. Plant yourself in Christ. Remind yourself of the gospel daily. Three, work with white hot abounding. I said that right. Work with white hot abounding. Paul doesn't just say that you should be steadfast and immovable. He says that you should work with abounding. Our work in ministry must be passionate. We must seek fruit. We must do all that we can. We must sacrifice ourselves. What about the white hot part? So John Piper, he likes that phrase. He likes the phrase white hot. He says that we should have white hot affection for Jesus Christ and serve him with the same white hot affection. Now when he would say that, it would annoy me. What does he mean by white hot? Why does he have to say that over and over again? And, and I saw him live a couple years ago. And he said, you know, I've been asked why I use that phrase white hot affection. And, and here's the reason. We're all sitting on the edges of our seats. He says, because it is the furthest thing from lukewarm that I know. And the whole place just let the sigh out. Revelation 3.15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Work with white hot abounding. For weep and speak. Weep and speak. 
Dr. Arthurs was here just a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember what he said about people that you come in, into contact to, into contact with? He says, you never meet a mere mortal. He was quoting Lewis. You never meet just an ordinary person. You are always meeting someone immortal. Many of the people that we are coming into contact, all of the people we are coming into contact are immortal, and many of them do not know Jesus, and they are going to hell. Have you wept over this? A friend of mine used to weep in the back of the college service that I led music at. He would weep for the people in front of him who did not know Christ. Have you wept? Have you let it motivate you to speak the truth of the gospel? Last, live your life with great joy. Live your life with great joy. I had a conversation with, with, uh, with someone a few weeks ago. He's not a believer, and he was talking to me about faith. It was really beautiful how I was speaking about it. And he was really fascinated with it. And he said that he was envious. He was envious of the life of faith. He didn't believe, but he wanted to because he knew that if he did, that he would have great hope. Hope that this life was not all that there was. Hope that he would see his family in heaven. And this challenged me. He is right. We should be a people who live with great joy. This does not mean that we stop mourning, but we do not mourn, as Paul says, as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, friends, brothers, and sisters. Do you believe that truth? May it guide you today. May it motivate you today. May it bring you great joy today. At the end of Lord of the Rings, Sam asks Gandalf this question. I've probably said this before. I'm going to read the whole thing this time. Is everything sad going to come untrue? End of the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf replies, What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, but the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then a sweet rain will pass down, a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer. His tears ceased. His laughter welled up. And laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel. He waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. Friends, what will happen when you die? pray that you will see Jesus face to face in paradise. Let's pray. God, may these things now direct us and guide us as we go to the table, to the table of mercy laid out for us. God, I pray for those who are struggling with death right now. For those who have recently or maybe a long time ago lost a loved one. And it is still so hard. God, you do not deny that it will be hard, but you say that you will speak to them in their ears. 
in their souls, that you will gird them up, that you will bind them up, that you will cover them and comfort them. Oh, God, do so. May they rest in the comfort of your word, in the comfort of your love. God, I pray for those who are struggling with the fear of death. Remind them of heaven. May they believe this truth, not just what I said, but what you have said in your word. May they be comforted. May they live their lives with joy. And God, finally, for those who do not believe, I pray with them. I pray with them that they would trust on Christ finally. That they would allow their faith to push them out onto that bridge. That they may see that it will hold them up. Because it will. And we know that it will because you, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, you rose from the dead. You defeated death forever. God, may we celebrate that now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.